Hello and welcome to Conversations with the Voice of Reason. I'm your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's Conversant is Alvin Liu, who is a recovering magician and the founder of Courage is a Habit, which is a collection of resources for parents and so-called normies to understand and confront the encroachment of what's sometimes called neo-Marxism or wokeism or SEL and DEI and CRT specifically into the United States education system. In this conversation, we speak about his grandparents' immigration from communist China and the values that he was taught in America that propelled him to success and how those values that propelled him to success are no longer being taught in the education system and what is being taught in their stead is pretty much a regurgitated form of what was being taught in communist China. So definitely check out these resources. They are very accessible, very well done. And I look forward to seeing what he and his group Courageous Habit will be coming up with in the future. Without further ado, here is Alvin Liu. Benjamin. Hey, Alvin, how you doing? I'm doing good. Is it Benjamin or Ben? Benjamin's cool. Unless you're trying to order a drink for me at Starbucks, then I wouldn't put them through all those extra letters. Says Ben. Yeah, no. Benjamin is good then. No, it's uh, nice to see you, sir. Thank you for reaching out uh, uh, to us here. Absolutely. I heard you on a Spaces uh, Mm -hmm. a few days ago, and you had some just some great formulations. And I checked out your website. It's just fantastic resources that you guys are putting together. Thank you. Great stuff. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate that. Really appreciate that. Very lucky to have a, you know, very good, uh, small, but very, very efficient team. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's all about the people. It's all about the passion. It's all about their belief in, the, in, in doing this. Yeah. And well, you guys are really putting in the work and you got some, uh, yeah. you have a really great graphic designer, whoever that is. It's like, She's amazing. Boom. Yeah. So, um, she is, should we just dive in? We should just dive in. Let's roll with it. Let's I'm, roll. I'm rolling with any punches. So you can ask away and I'll answer. And we'll have a great conversation and hopefully you get something that you can uh, work with. Yeah. Great. Cool. So before we get into your work, which is, I didn't write it down. I didn't write it down and I can't remember it. <laughs> My brain just... That's okay. You want uh, you want me to send it over, and then you can. Uh... No, I just need to say it out loud for the recording. Here it is. Sorry about that. Yeah. Courage no. is a habit. Okay, here we go. All right. Yes, Am sir. I still there? You're here. Yeah, you froze for a second, but you're good. Okay. I am having a. Yeah. Okay. I th- hopefully, it's just our connection. Um, but you put together courage as a habit, and it's it's a teamwork effort to inform it looks like mostly right now you're concentrating on parents and what's going on in the education system. But before we get to that, which is the core, how did you, where, where do you come from? What, what's the trajectory into this? So where did you begin? Um, sure. As an adult, Uh, maybe. As an adult, maybe. Yeah. Uh, so I, uh, I was actually born and raised in California and, uh, other than, uh, four years in New York, I had lived uh, many, many years ago. Um, I was pretty much in California. And so uh, uh, we moved to Indiana in April 2020. So right in the 
beginning of the pandemic. We didn't move because of the pandemic. We moved because we didn't want to raise our daughter in California for all the same reasons that we see now uh, across the country. But obviously, California is way, way, way uh, deeper. Um, and then when we got to Indiana, uh, we saw that a lot of the same blueprint and seeds that destroyed California has already begun. Uh, and it started in the schools. Uh, the only difference is in California, it started in academia and the colleges and worked its way down. Now, they, the, the people that are pushing this ideology um, starts in K through 12 because it's certainly a lot more efficient to brainwash kids at an earlier age. So that then the question became, do we just want to put our head down and live up our lives in peace or do we want to or where's my, you know, my children, where are they going to go? You know, where are they going to go? In, in the sense that if you get places like Indiana and other states start to go the way of California, then they got nowhere else to go. Uh, you know, nobody is, nobody's escaping in the middle of the night from the U S to Cuba or Venezuela. Yeah, Okay, so yes. You, <laughs> so let's that's how, got, that's how we got into the the school fight. Into uh, what consciousness raising? Okay. What what do you call it? Are you propagandist? What do you what do you think of yourself? A this bot. work. What would you call it? Oh, um, I would just just <laughs> I don't even know what we call it. I just it's just defending children. Okay, letting them defending their innocence, letting them grow up the way they're supposed to grow up. Okay. And then keeping edu keeping academics at a high level, because you know I we I think you know I, I believe hopefully a lot of people believe that academics it's a great equalizer no matter where you came from you know my parents you know or my great my great grandfather ran from communism and very poor you know when of course you get here all immigrants are but academics is the great equalizer that's the one thing that can change a generation or change a family's gener family's legacy in one generation if you have good education. Mm -hmm. And so this is not it. <laughs> the what we see in K through twelve will not will not improve anybody's legacy. It will simply just destroy it because you are creating a, a, a society full of social justice warriors and victims instead of focusing on how they can better their their family legacy and their family and and contribute to society instead of being tearing it down because hmm. you think the whole country is systemically racist. So I don't know what we call it other than I just, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm just a regular guy who just says this is not right. Um, so that's how we got into it. And then, uh, you know, we, we, uh, we had a, um, we had a nonprofit here in Indiana. We still do. We still do. We have a nonprofit here in Indiana uh, that uh, focuses on the local, but there was a point where I think I realized that this is a much larger than any local thing any local area and that uh, we needed a national a national organization that worked with other larger parental groups because there's a there's not a lot there's, this is a very new space so it's not like nobody's like five or ten years old but there's a lot of really great organizations out there that's doing you know really good work but what i found is and what i would say i, I think there's a, a few of us that felt that Everybody points out the problem, but nobody does produces anything to help the average parent, school board candidate, 
legislator to do something about it. So it's this is the formula that we see. Oh my God, here's the problem. Oh my God, did you see that drag queen story time at the elementary school? Oh my God, did you see that drag queen dancing for middle schools? Oh my God, did you see that uh, horrific book? Tech teacher. Awful. Everybody comes in, outrage, outrage, outrage. We should do something. We should get rid of that. Period. But they're missing that second step. The second step is how? What do you do? So we point out problems and then expect that the evil will be vanquished. It's like step one, point out the problem. Step three, evil vanquished, children saved. But there's a step two. How, what's, how do you do it? What's, what do you do? And so I always put myself in the average mom and dad who works 40, 50 hours, try to spend time with their kids and their family and their hobbies and doing things. They don't have time to read a 10-page white paper. They don't have time to listen to a two-hour podcast. They don't have time to go through the nuance of things to find out what it is. They need to have tools that they could use to defend their child next week because the longer we take to give tool to put tools in their hands every day their kids are getting indoctrinated every day they don't do something is one day closer that their kids are going to start being moving further away from them so that's what drives me is that if we don't get these tools and we don't get that quick understanding into the hands of parents so that they feel confident to defend and actually do something about it then all we're doing is just rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. We can go around and around and analyze this all day long. It won't matter unless we empower and inspire the average parent to take action, to do something. And that's where we try our best to come in. Okay. So lots of, lots of improvement. Yeah. It, it sounds like you're kind of at the beginning and this entire movement's kind of in, in a nascent, uh, nascent kind of stage right now we are and and you're also focusing on on a ground up movement uh like like individuals interacting there's certain uh strategic questions or problems that i'm sure you're thought you've thought about and i would like to get into there but before we go there may i ask do you have any stories about your great grandpa and and where he was and and why he how he got out and what he experienced well, I think there's a lot of uh, Americans who don't realize that China was not always communism, and they weren't they weren't communists for that long ago. The communism came. I think a lot of people still think China was just has always been communist. It's been communist for thousands of years, but that's not true. So my great grandfather he uh, owned a couple of bakeries. Not nothing. He was a wealthy man. He was a small business owner. Owned like two bakeries. Um, wanted to build something, hand down to his, you know, his, his kids, like every good man does. And when communism came, um, they took, as communism does, they take everything. They start to, the reason why they got communists, uh, the communism took over is because they're using the same blueprint we see today, dividing people, getting young people to look at other groups and say, it's their fault. You're not being successful. Now in China, they couldn't use race because China is a monolith, you know, obviously. But the, the blueprint that we see today moving towards communism using a Marxist ideology is the same. The only difference is we use 
race here instead of class. Because America has too strong of a middle class and people are not destitute enough to raise arms because even our middle, even our lowest middle class here live better than most other people in other countries, right? But in China, there was a big class divide. So that's what they used. So they used class. And my great-grandfather, they dragged him out. They beat him because he's a evil rich, you know? Um, and it wasn't the soldiers that did it. It was college kids. It was called the Red Guard. You probably know that. A lot of people may not. Um, it's our version of, it's their version of what today is our BLM, our LGBT, our activists, our protesters. Say Don't forget Antifa. Kids. Antifa, right? Antifa. Yep. Those things that that got, all those groups, um, they're that version. No, no one's No one's inventing anything new. No one's inventing anything new. They're just repackaging things that have already proven to work. Um, and so, you know, he, he came here uh, with nothing. Obviously, you know, obviously, you come with nothing. You're running from your home country. He landed in Hawaii, uh, hmm. didn't speak a lick of English, and just worked at restaurants. You know, that's all he could do, wash dishes. Just himself, or did he bring his family? Just himself. Okay. And then because America is such a wonderfully open and diverse and amazing country. We were one of the few countries at the time, especially that had chain immigration, family immigration. And that's how he was able to slowly bring, uh, will be my grandfather and then my dad and my mom. Okay. So it's, uh, for most immigrants, we have a very huge love and gratitude for this country because my father always told my siblings and I, that because we're born obviously you know, we're born here right so he would say if you can't make it in america you can't make it anywhere he goes if you're born in america and you can't make it in america you can't make it anywhere and you know he used to tell us that all the time and we would of course as kids be like yeah okay what, what does that mean whatever now of course as adults we truly understand how valuable that lesson was because uh it reminded us to not take our freedoms for granted and so on that same vein, one of the things that when I talk to parents and I talk about things like critical race theory and they talk about how systemically racist America is, the one problem they always have is that no matter what school district you go to from California to New York and everything in between, you'll almost always find that Asian kids do better than white kids in the uh, rankings. Mm-hmm. Generally speaking, that's almost a truism. Yeah. And when I say Asian, I mean like Indians, Chinese, Filipinos, yeah. right? That's, the Asians in, kind of cover it broad. In, in my county, a couple of years ago, they stopped even uh, counting the Asians. They just packaged it into white. <laughs> ah, screw them. They're white. <laughs> they're close enough. They're white. Uh, because we're inconvenient, right? And, uh, you know, we're a very inconvenient sore spot. Now... I would say then that the reason why, and this is what I this is what I always tell when I come on the interviews or when I go speak to parents, Asian household, this is the culture in one sentence. No matter where we come from, no matter how poor we are, we look at our children and we tell them, you are only one generation away from success. We could be living, like when I was born, because I'm the oldest, my parents lived in an apartment that had concrete floors with holes in them. 
And so as a little kid, you know, little kids shuffle their feet. They always walk like this. I would always rip holes in my socks because we have all these little holes in con- We don't, this is like ground, concrete ground, very, 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 very poor. And my mom would have to sell it. So my parents would always say, you're only one generation away from success. It doesn't matter where you are. And today, you know, I live in one of the nicest, most affluent cities in the country. One generation. And, but critical race theory, here's the distinction, critical race theory and this ideologies tells black kids, if you are not successful, look three generations back. If you constantly tell a child, every time they fail, every time something doesn't go their way, if you're constantly telling them to look three generations back as to why they're not successful because of this policy, this law, this white person, this, all these things that's happened, there's a really high chance that that kid's going to grow up to be very unsuccessful and to blame all the things they've been taught to blame. Hmm. But if you tell a child, any child, that every time something doesn't go their way, just do better next time. Try harder, work hard. I work really, really hard. Well, you can work harder the next time. There's always harder work to be done. And that's our Asian culture. So if you say that once or twice, that's not going to do anything. If you blame someone once or twice, that's not going to do anything. But if you make that a culture in your household, and that's what that child hears for 18, 20 years, they're probably going to end up fairly successful because they're always going to know, I have a bright future. I have hope. That's the difference. Critical race theory tells kids they have no hope. What, what, what doesn't matter what you do. There's always some boogeyman or some system or some person mm-hmm. that's some unbiased, some conscious that's holding you down. What do you think is going to happen to a child when you continue telling that? Of course, they're going to be unsuccessful. So that's it. It's not that anyone's born smarter or more or less. I say Asian people is really good at math. I'm horrible at math. Terrible. Right? There's no genetics that makes someone smart. It's just about what you tell a child, and that's the that's that and that's what I that's what that when when these when schools bring in this critical race theory and they bring in this the social emotional learning is about all about representation and feelings and if someone doesn't look like you you can't learn those things all it does is that it gives children all the excuse in the world to not reach their full potential mm-hmm. and 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 that's you know you, your original question was telling you know my, my grand, great grandfather you know it's that my father always reminded us of what a horrible time that was but he just kept going until you know he brought his family here. Opened yeah. up. So uh, when did you become aware of what you, what you earlier said is destroying California? How did you first become aware of this? You know, when you live in California, it's kind of like uh, fish don't know they're wet, right? You just always think, oh, yeah, this is how it is. Things are just more expensive because well, we're California. Or people in California say, well, it's just because we have nice weather. I was like, well, the last time I looked, I don't think God taxed for weather, you know? But... You don't think about it that way until you have, you, until you have kids, right? And then you start to really look at schools and you start to look at crime, and then traveling helps, right? A lot of people in California just don't travel. I, that's the one weird thing. People are very ignorant of geography. Whereas I found that in the Midwest and things, people do they do travel among because the states are smaller and you go around. And so I was, you know, fairly lucky enough to, you know, do a little traveling. And then when you go to different states, you talk to different people and you see that. 
hey, how come they live like this? How come their taxes are like that? How come they don't have this kind of issues with crime? And then you start to realize like, oh, it's not because it's good weather. It's because these policies. Now, most people, like I'm not a political person at all. Uh, if you ask me just, you know, before, I mean, when growing up, I couldn't even barely tell you who governor was, right, of the state. So you don't realize that some of these things are, but it's just slow. And then, and then you look around going, God, you know, why are the schools this way? Why are crimes this way? Taxes. And we get, you know, our taxes are so high, but yet look at our roads and look at where it goes. And it's going to support every single Drakken society you could think of. And you're just like, there's no, and then you come to a place like here in Indiana, like, you know, I, I live over here in, in, you know, in Hamilton County and you look at all the beautiful things and just the way that, that the taxes are used to help, you know, to at least there's the ROI. As a family, you see the ROI. The parks are cleaner, the roads are better, the things, just the services are more efficient. And so you just don't think about those things when you grow up in California. So there, I don't, I don't, I couldn't say there was any one moment that I thought, oh my God, but California did get really bad really fast. And then so I think then we had to decide like, okay, is that where we really want to, where we want to raise a family? Um, is that where our money's going to go the farthest? And then security, you know, like, you know, they don't, they, 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 they are the most criminal friendly state, you know, it's what just a revolving door for criminals. So like, for example, one of the laws that they passed back in um, 2014 now, 2014, 2015, and uh, it was a law. This is not an executive order now. This is a law voted on by people where uh, a criminal can, they can, uh, rob $950 worth of merchandise and it'll be a misdemeanor instead of a felony. Then the $950 resets the next day. This is why if you some, see some of the videos, if you pull like Walgreens shoplifting or Safari shoplifting or whatever in California, you see them come in and they just wipe out shelves and then just walk out because they know that when you go into Walgreens, you can't get $950 worth of stuff. It's not like you're going to an Apple store. So after a while, police don't, they don't, there's so many of that happening in California, so much of it that police, they don't even show up anymore. So there is no prosecution. You're just, or, or, or people, you know, criminals can be in, in, you know, they can be in jail for homicide and they'll be out to kill some more and hurt other people. And you, you see that revolving door because, and, and, and I'm going to tie this back to the schools because over in schools, they have things called restorative justice. And that's part of the social emotional learning programs. And what restorative justice says is that certain kids of color, if they get a bad grade, that's not their fault. If, if you try to get them to show up in time, that's white supremacy. If you try to grade them and correct them and, you know, make sure that they uh, turn and work on time, all that is white culture. So they start eliminating, they start, you know, putting fancy words like grading for equity things of that nature restorative justice so they start punishing different oh we it looks like that you know black and brown kids get um, suspended more than white kids or asian kids so we're just going to eliminate suspensions right things like that that's that's restorative justice so when you have that in the schools of course when these kids go through that program when they get out laws also don't apply to them and then they just they just continue that well this law is you know not right you know, uh, you know, uh, these criminals, you know, oh, too many black criminals are, are, are in jail. It's not their fault. The system's racist. They have to steal to eat. It's not their fault. And then you start lowering and lowering. It's that, that whole thing. And so you can see how that is a very easy pipeline from the school 
restorative justice to how California starts letting criminals out, uh, you know, in, in revolving doors. So illegal aliens, right? We have a lot of illegal, you know, obviously next to the border. Um, you have a lot of crime, huge financial drain. So you start seeing some of those things and, um, and then, but then it's funny coming to Indiana because then you start seeing the beginnings of it because obviously there's nowhere near that. Not a lot of people aren't, but you start seeing the same train. So it's like going back and watching the same movie again. And then you hear people say the same thing all across the country, right? We go to Connecticut, Nebraska, we go to, you know, Florida, we go to, uh, anywhere, uh, you know, the Virginia, anywhere. And, uh, people always say, uh, the same thing. Oh, it won't happen here. Oh, that's just crazy. California. That's what we said. Right. Oh, it will never get that bad back right back in the day. So uh, people just uh, everybody plays the same role. Everybody says the same thing. And it's on that same track. And but now now the people pushing it, uh, the you know, the powers that be that pushes it's certainly a lot more efficient. And then they get into the K through 12s. And it's uh, it's you know, they get it's tough because you get into the kids heads really early. OK, so you said earlier that uh, nobody's inventing anything new that right. uh, they, they saw what worked in China yeah. and mm-hmm. Russia and they're just going with that. Cuba, that, that, all that right. Except they ignore all the consequences. Apparently they, they ignore that, you know, it, it ended up not working out. Yeah. They, ignore, we, yeah, they ignore that part. Yeah. Does your side, and I don't mean to take sides here, force you sure. into a binary thinking, but just sure. loosely, to counter that or the counter-revolutionary mm-hmm. side, has that ever worked in China, in Russia? Or did the country, once it started the slide, did it have to go all the way and reset? Has there ever been a successful counter-revolution? I don't know. Okay. I don't so, know. So where I, are you getting your ideas them. from? Where, where, where are you getting your ideas from? Well, I think what... The benefit that we have today is we, we have history. We have history because we now have enough to see how it goes and okay. what they were using. So I'll give you a micro example and then to kind of explain that the macro uh, the macro question you have. Let's say California. When when it happened to California and to New York to the larger extent because they're both coasts, there was no state that we could look to and say, hey, these policies, they tried that over in Georgia. You know, they tried that over in Indiana. Look how it turned out 10 years ago. So not to excuse our naivete, right, back in in California, the people there, but we simply, it sounded great, just like SCL sounds great today, just like critical race theory sounds great, depending on who you're talking to. So those, back then, things sounded good. It sounded reasonable. So we didn't know because we had no context. Today, I would say nobody in any state has that excuse because if you don't know, just go look at California and see that this was the same track. The weird thing, though, well, this is micro. So, again, you're focusing on ground up uh, just Mm -hmm. to kind of venture into the macro level. New York, California, the coastal states and maybe Chicago. Yeah. 
they have a hold on the media. They have the hold mm-hmm. on the narrative apparatus. Mm-hmm. They also, you know, mm-hmm. and then we, we talk about the uh, universities. We also talk about the federal government all kind of bowing or trending in this direction. Sure. But they don't seem willing to admit what's happening. It doesn't seem, right. it seems like they are very righteous. They, they look down on the red states, yeah. the flyover country, yeah. as sure. backward, as yeah. regressive, yeah. as ignorant yeah. and intolerant. Yeah. Right. While their policies and their beliefs or their moral matrix is decaying their foundations yeah. under them. Right. So it just seems right. like they don't want to give up the narrative or I, I don't see them ever admitting a mistake. You're, but right. You're right about that. Some people are. It depends. Is it the argument that is it enough or the question is it enough? I don't know. Because, you know, you've got people recalling school boards in San Francisco and they recall mm-hmm. that uh, district attorney in San Francisco. So certainly uh, I think even your uh, middle of the road Democrats are going, all right, this is OK. This okay. is really far. Okay. Uh, but on the question about has do I know of a country that started down that path and was uh, opposition able to stop it from sliding or does it you have to go down to that path and then either stay there or try to rise up after that um i guess i don't know i don't know of one off the top of my head where i can say it was stopped but like i alluded to earlier the advantage that we have now here in america is that we certainly have enough evidence just like other states have enough evidence out of california that we know where it goes and so uh is you know are we gonna i don't i don't really look at this as winning and losing i i, I want to kind of i think that that i know that the people are in my in my space uh talk about winning we have to win we have to win i i don't you'll never hear me really talk about that i talk about defending our child to, uh, the children and i talk about you know uh try to push education back to a higher standard of academics so that everybody because academics is the equalizer but i don't really talk about winning and losing because i know that when you come to when you come to things like this it's not that simple because there's no marker to win there's no finish line what's winning if we eliminate one of these organizations that's pushing it is that winning well another organization will take its place if we wake enough parents how many parents do we need to wake up to consider we won how many school boards do we need to take? So, all right, so let's say we take over school boards. Let's say we win the next 70% of our elections in all across the country. Do we win? Sure. But then what happens then? What happens? What do they do then with it? What happens in another four, three or four years, right? Is are, is that going to, what about the kids that are already indoctrinated? They're going to be protesting and stomping and screaming and trying to, you know, do that. So, you know, it's a really infinite game, right? This is an infinite thing. Hmm. I don't look at it as winning and losing. What I do look at, though, is what I reasonably can live with, meaning that when, I'm, when I've said, okay, I feel like I've done enough, can I look back on this and say, you know what? I did, I did my best with what I knew at the time. Or am I going to look back and say, you know, I wish I would have done more. I wish I wouldn't have done this. And that's how I look at it. And that's how I tell my team to go, look, you're, there's a lot of people doing a lot of good work, some of it in our space, some of it in other spaces. Like there are guys that are fighting ESG, which is something that we don't touch at all. That's the, you know, the, the, the whole woke corporations and things of that nature, right? That's good for them because we need to do that. Because what we're doing is that they're training students through uh, social emotional learning. And they're, that's the, to me, that's the farm leagues, the little leagues. And then they're put, and once they graduate into the corporation, that's the ESG stuff. So there are a lot of people doing a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I don't look at it as winning and losing. I just look at it as that did we put our honest effort in or did we just put our heads down and say someone else is going to do it. It'll be fine. We'll just pray and hope that Jesus comes back and then we'll be good. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, that, 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 that philosophy that. is consistent with what you're saying about um, the household that you grew up in about look forward, work harder. If it doesn't work, work harder. You can always work harder. Always just mm-hmm. no, kind of notice the grindstone. It yeah. seems consistent. So with That's that said, let's get into SEL. Cause I really enjoyed what you were, how you were breaking down SELs, some of the clearest Thank stuff you. that I heard um, last you. weekend. So uh, can, you. can you just kind of describe what it is, how it got where it is now? Sure. Cause it sounds like a good idea. It was it's yeah. based on good ideas and then yeah. something else. So yeah. what is it? Yeah. And why okay. is it bad? So I'm going to, I'll give it a, a, a high level of what it is today, where it came, where it came from and why it's so confusing to people. So those three points, how's that great for your listeners that I'm going to assume that whoever's watching this may have only started hearing about SEL, but have very little idea of it. So I'll go from that point. Um, social emotional learning is a Trojan horse program disguised as mental health. It is in 90% of the schools and there's over a hundred third party vendors that pushes it. But all those vendors take its cues or stamp or approvals, however you want to call it, from a company organization, very well-funded organization called Castle, C-A-S-E-L, C-A-S-E-L. It is a program that comes in that hijacks all the wonderful things that you and I and millions of other parents would want to teach our children. Now, do you have children? Do, no. do you have children? No, but I've okay. worked in so, I worked in childcare. Childcare, right? And you may have nieces, nephews, and cousins, and things of that nature, right? Yes. So, if I tell you I have an eight-year-old, I have an eight-year-old son, and I am teaching him responsible decision making, which is one of the social emotional learning uh, uh, tenets. Even you, even if you don't have children, you can probably surmise. If he's eight years old, what I'm talking about, generally speaking, you're, you're not going to think, well, he's chicken. He's teaching him not to drink and drive. Probably not that. Right. Um, if I have a son who's 22 and I say, I'm trying to teach him responsible decision making, you'll probably surmise what that means. Right. Pay your rent on time, balance, your, you know, that kind of thing, you know, make sure your credit's good. Right. Probably not teaching him not to poop in his pants, hopefully. Right. At 22. <laughs> What they mean by responsible decision-making when social-emotional learning comes in is that they're setting up white children so that when they become voting age, they, because they're white, their responsible decision-making is to vote for things like reparations. Right? Uh, Another one, managing emotions. Managing emotions is good. It's great advice. I teach kids. My my daughter is to to, to manage emotions. You got to do all that. What they mean by managing emotions is if you're a girl and a man comes into the bathroom, if you feel uncomfortable, you have to manage your emotions. That's an unconscious bias. So the one thing, if, if, if anyone's listening to this and they don't remember anything else, the only thing I want to remember is social emotional learning hijacked very good things that we've always done, that we've always passed on. 
and convinced everybody that they invented all these things. And without them, we're not teaching kids any of these things. So they use those terms as a Trojan horse to get all parents to fall asleep. And if you try, if parents want to fight against that, they'll say, we're just teaching. We're just teaching about managing emotions and, and, and responsible decision making. What's wrong with you? Don't you want kids to, right? It's that gaslighting, mm -hmm. right? Um, and uh, I'll, I'll, I'll mention a, a formula here that we just released called the, the, the just gaslighting formula. I'll come back to that. But we're just teaching this. What's wrong with you? Uh, and because parents hear that and they assume it's the things that you and I agree to agree with, uh, they just stop paying attention. And that's when they start being able to put in the critical race theory, the transgender cult ideology, all those different intersectionalities. And that's why, and, and it's not, a, it's, it's all in the schools. It's completely in the classrooms. It's in the way they teach. It's in their books. It's in their clubs. It's in everything. All this guy's is mental health. Here's the irony of it is that the more they push this, the more actual mental health decline kids get because now they're about their gender and the pronouns and the white and black and oppress and oppressor. And so you're actually driving uh, actual mental health and anxiety in children all the while telling parents they're helping that. Yeah. And the worse it gets, the more they say, oh, now we need more social emotional learning. And so it's that wonderful, self-fulfilling prophecy, that nasty cycle that, that is SEL. So in a nutshell, that's what it is. Um, so that's the first point. Second point, where it came from. One of the big myths right now is going around is that social emotional learning was good at one point. It just turned bad in 2017 or 2018. It became transformative SEL. That is not true. It's true that it became transformative SEL. And all that was was Castle basically said, all right, we're in 90% of school district. Now it's time for to throttle it hard. And then all the radical stuff started coming in. But it was always radical. So social emotional learning um, that came out uh, was uh, in 1995 is our, the, the, the version of social emotional learning that you see. And it came out of the Fetzer Institute, John Fetzer, F-E-T-Z-E-R. And he, that when, when, when social emotional learning was invented, it was always meant to be a new age religion. So the irony is that we always scream about the separation of church and state, keeping religion out of schools, but we have religion in schools called social emotional learning. It was, it, and again, anyone can look this up. It's not, you know, I don't have some secret library I'm going to. Uh, social emotional learning was invented out of the Fetzer Institute. It was always meant to be a new age religion and a, and a new consciousness. So it was always meant to be a thought reform program. What do you mean by new this, this, age? Like crystals and like incense, and you you smudge your sage around the classroom. Eventually, is that where we're headed? Like, what do you mean? Uh, they had uh, you know seances. They had all these different things that were just kind of the opposite of what the Judeo Christian okay. that this country was built on. So it was kind of, it was kind of a counter to that, which is fine. I mean, anybody can start any religion. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just that that was always what it was meant to be. It was supposed to be a new agey, very spiritual, very just you know new religion and uh john fetzer himself always had uh marxist type of beliefs and tendencies okay so when social emotional learning was in the fringes all right great whatever there's a lot of things that in the fringes there's a lot of religion in the fringes but once it took hold of academia at the you know collegiate level 
that's when it start becoming very dangerous because now it's in our public education disguised as mental health, which is also why these um, things like critical race theory, the transgender ideology, that kind of thing, found a home so easily through social emotional learning because the ground for social emotional learning was always tilled, was always very fertile for these type of ideologies. Because critical race theory and the transgender cult, all those things, what they share in common is that it's a thought reform program. It's changing the children's viewpoint and values of the world, of themselves, of their families. This is why there's always this idea, and again, back to the red coats, it was there, you know, kids were turning their parents in to the to to the to the mild regime. Here, if your parents are not with Black Lives Matter, they're racist. They're bigots. Uh, if your parents don't affirm you, they're not your family anymore. It's always about turning children against their family. Again, not inventing anything new. They're not inventing anything new here. This has been done. Um, but the social emotional learning, that ground was very fertile for these things. So when these things, uh, it was very, it was a great fit uh, for social emotional learning. So social emotional learning, there was nothing good about it. There was nothing, there was nothing, anything redeeming about it. Anything that people thought was good, it was things that we always had. So for example, they'll say, well, some kids come and they have trouble. Uh, they've been abused or neglected. They don't have food. They can't learn. Great. That's true. There's that, that had always existed. What did we do with the kids back then? We have programs in the schools, in the schools, in the communities, different things to help those kids and help those families. Those things have always existed. All social emotional learning did was took those things, claimed it as their own, and then slid in all these things and now convinced you, oh, if you get rid of social emotional learning, you get rid of all these good things too. But those good things were always there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I the other the, if I if I give an example to that is like saying, well, we teach kindness, we teach empathy, we teach accepting others. Yeah, you mean like good parents, or good uncles, or good aunts, or good teachers, or good coaches, or good mentors, or good pastors and priests, and good counselors, and all those good people that used to be not today. Right, school counselors are super woke and they're super, uh, you know, ideological. But those things have always been there. How often have you heard someone who was very successful go, I came from a bad home, but thank God for Mr. Williams. He was my history teacher. Thank God for Mrs. Uh, you know, uh, Mrs. Uh, Mrs. James, she was my, uh, you know, uh, chemistry teacher or my coach. He took me, you know, he paid attention and knew I was at a, you know, need, need, I needed help and paid attention and really got me off the streets. How often did we hear that before? All the time, all the time, because those things have always existed. So when social emotional learning came in and they tried to claim they have, they invented these things. That's not true. All they did was hijack it. And that's, so that's the history of it and, and where it is right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 you know, the third thing is that right now, social emotional learning is a catch all for anything they want to slide in because they already have it in, in the school. It's so deep into it. Um, and the, the, the third thing I really want to, really want to hit on is i think i hit a little bit on the on the space which is my main point is that the third point that where the parents can do something about this they can't do anything about where it came from they can't do anything about these big you know organizations what they can do about it is that the reason why social emotional learning is more and more every year is because they survey children in the classroom they data mine to children it's a data mining 
system program. These are, these are surveys that give children in the classroom most of the time without parental consent. And most of these questions seem very innocuous. If you and I read them, we'll be like, they seem fine. They're just asking, do you ever feel that you don't belong in school? Do you ever feel like you're not, you know, that you can't get your work done on time? Things like that. But the programs, or the, excuse me, the organizations that they hire to deliver these programs, like a Panorama, like a Power School, those programs, those organizations, I keep these organizations, when they take your children's data, they interpret it through what they call an equity lens. In layman's term, they interpret it through the eyes of a critical race theorist. So if a child says, yeah, on a scale of one to 10, 10 being the most belonging, I feel like a six on average day of belonging. Instead of going, well, is it because he doesn't have enough friends? Is it because, what is it? Is it a bad day? You just ask, so number one, you should be asking kids these really, there's a lot of invasive questions they ask too. You should be serving children and keeping their data. That's the first thing. But they interpret it through by saying, well, the school culture is oppressive. That's why he doesn't feel belonging. So we need more LGBT clubs, more BLM clubs, more insert ideology, hmm. more so books. It's it's completely transformative in the sense that it's not only thought reform, it's institutional reform. The whole thing is geared to manipulate uh, the individual and to uh, manipulate the system by interpreting it, the data that they receive as grounds for reforming grounds for reforming well in one direction. And I assume well that they are always keeping track of identity markers and then interpreting yes. different uh, answers oh, yes. to different questions according to that. See, you got it. Okay. Couldn't have said it better. That's exactly right. So what I said, the first two things I said about the history and about the Trojan horse and about them, you know, using those words, parents don't feel that. They don't feel that unless they're trying to fight. What they feel is that third thing I said. Why are this happening to my kid's school? Why are these books? Why are these? Why are you hanging these flags? Your parents always say, what in the hell? What? That was not my school I went to. They feel the third is because they feel the end of that cycle. They feel the surveys, the manipulation, the policy changes, and then they feel the end of that policy change. But they don't know how, why. And here's the kicker. When you go and ask them why, they will say things like research shows, data-driven, evidence-based, that kids feel X, we need more X. Or kids feel X, we need more Y. Technically, they're not lying. It is research-based and data-driven and evidence-based. It's their own data and their own evidence that they've manipulated. Mm -hmm. So my big push, just two months for two months at least, I mean, throughout the whole year. But our big push at Courage is a Habit is to have parents opt out their children out of these surveys. And on our website, if you go to courageisahabit.org, courageisahabit.org, uh, we have a tool. You download it. It explains at a high level. We're not trying to bury, bury anybody with minutiae here. Uh, it explains roughly what I just said at a high level. And it, at the end is a form that our attorney wrote that a parent can print out. They can either type it on the computer and print it out. We also tell you who to send it to, how to send it, how to deliver it. So that way, you know, some schools might not honor it. If they don't, then you have a lawsuit on your hands. Uh, but if enough parents opt out, 
then they're going to have to pay attention. And that's going to throw a big wrench into their SEO uh, bloodline and their well, cycle. If Merrick Garland decides that <laughs> opting out is a form of white supremacy, then, you know, good luck to you guys. Um, not that he would ever we'll do that. We'll be domestic terrorists again. Yeah. We'll be domestic terrorists again. There's there's a lot of different levels to this entire conversation that I've covered on my channel. And you were focusing on a very specific or, or uh, just a handful of very specific things. And that's very, very right. important um, to actually yes. rubber meets the road. Let's yeah. stop complaining and describing mm -hmm. things and worrying about things. Let's get some work done and see what we mm -hmm. can do. Let's see where that goes. That's right. right. That said, the question that I have or that I'm mulling over a lot is that if they have a very strong ideology and it's a very mm -hmm. strong ideology, it plugs into people, it plugs into your emotions, it causes you to want to change things, it, it shames you if you don't get along, it's pretty much like a form of religion that is using is. very secular terms. Is it enough to just opt out? Is it enough? Is is it not necessary to have something that's positive rather than opting out of this thing? Is is there an American set of values? Let's say, is there something sure. positive that you believe on yourself, even if you're not trying to promote mm -hmm. it in your work right now because it's secondary? Mm -hmm. But I'm just mm -hmm. I'm interested because it seems like humanity or any given group of humans need positive values, not just yes. No, those values bombs. you're so right about that. And that's something we talk about internally quite a bit. Um, oftentimes in our space or people that are kind of doing the same type of work, we always say, stop, don't do this. But we never say, do this instead. Right. We never go. We always say stop, but we never say where to go. And that's something that we do have to do a better job at overall. But for us, uh, there's two things. I want to always try to impart when we're delivering these tools is that we have to break the myth that somehow you, a parent or a guardian or whoever is, you know, overseeing children, that somehow there's something not inclusive or homophobic or racist or transphobic about you. Because if you can't get that out of people's head, if you get them, this is why they start off with that first. This is why they always lead with that, what you call the shame and the, 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 what you just said there. The reason why they lead with that first is because they know if they can fill that person with that guilt, then you can you can kind of turn that person like a horse, right? You can turn them anywhere. So we always try to remind parents that they take advantage of your kindness by telling you how unkind you are. They take advantage of your kindness by how unkind you are, and I will prove it right now. If the... You, your community, the country, your school is as racist or homophobic as they make you out to be, your school would not look like the way it is today. Imagine for a moment, if you really are as racist as people are making you out to be, do you think you would have allowed the first Black Lives Matter flag in your school? Wouldn't you have bounced that when someone told you, hey, black kids don't feel included. If you were a real racist, what would you have said? I don't care. Too bad. They're lucky to be in school. Right? Hmm. If you were really homophobic, the first time someone said a child's gay, they'll be like, I don't want him in school. Get him out. You wouldn't have all the rainbow flags. So the fact that our school, most of our K through 12, looks like political 
rally centers for every in you know intersectional ideology shows how inclusive and open the people are but it's not enough every time you change so that's the first thing so we have to get off that notion that you are that way but where we want to go is we do want to go towards education that challenges children that pushes them academically their behavior hold them to a higher standard but you can't hold them to a higher standard if the parents feel guilty mm-hmm. and that you have these programs that continue to tell them that they're victims mm-hmm. and that nothing they do is their fault unless you're white then everything's your fault so until we remove until we get these things out and the money out because there's the hundreds and thousands of dollars that are spent every year on these surveys and on these, you know, uh, anti-racist, uh, unconscious bias teacher development trainings. Yep. So you're filling these teachers' head with this stuff. Then they fill the children's head with this stuff. So there's no way you can get there until you remove these things out of the schools. And then, of course, at the same time, too, you can walk and chew gum at the same time. You do want to get this out, but at the same time, you want to push, you want to start to hold on to these high-flying classes. This is why when this diversity, equity, inclusion comes in, the CRT, this ideology comes in, the first thing to get rid of, one of the first things is the uh, honors AP, classes, high-flying yeah, classes, AP yeah. classes, right? Yeah. Too much, too many Asians and Indians in there. It's, uh, it's not equitable. Mm-hmm. So they're trying to make they're trying to make it to the race at the bottom. So we have to hold on to these classes. We have to hold on to these because that's where you want kids to go. You want kids to shoot for that. If you don't make that AP class this year, maybe you'll make it next year. So, and if you don't make it, maybe you can help your sibling make it. So we, what I want everyone to work towards is that pushing kids past what you think their potential is, both in behavior and respect and in academics. And if you know, if you have a D student, that's okay. Make them a C student. Make them a good C student, a C plus student. That's okay, right? Not everybody. We understand. Not everybody can be an A student. That's okay. But you always want to make them better than what they think. And don't let them sit there and take a D student and say it's not your fault. Make them an F student. That's what we're doing. Hmm. And we're taking A students and saying you're just privileged. So why don't you be a B student? And, okay. And, and so that's where I want us to go. It's the high rigor. So high standards. one, uh, one possibility, uh, is, uh, is if the colleges of education are captured and the yeah. place, the, every certification system is captured and is, yeah. is implemented this 90% of college or lower grades or primary schools and secondary schools are pushing this or taken yes. over by this. Um, all yes. the money's already geared up and yeah. in place to do that. Yeah. Even, yeah. even through school choice, it's already, it's already mm-hmm. figured into that. Mm-hmm. Some would argue that it's too far gone, that the work needs to uh, be focused on creating alternative institutions, alternative certification mm-hmm. uh, institutions. Mm-hmm. It doesn't sound like you're ready to give up yet. But if, if, will you know, um, at what point, if, if it is, if the Titanic is going down and that the life 
boats are more important than yeah. the deck chairs. So yeah. how do you know yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. And, and what are your thoughts on, on that? I don't think I'm smart enough to know that. Okay. Uh, so I, 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 I would not, uh, I'm not arrogant enough to say that I'm smart enough to know that. Um, I will say that there are organizations uh, that are out there creating new paradigms. Um, uh, and I know that uh, they are do they do good work. One of them being a new founding, newfounding.com, uh, align, uh, joinalign.us. Those companies are trying to create new paradigms, both in tech and in business and finance, so that give uh, business owners matching with consumers and that type of thing, so that we all know that look, there are options out there. It's not it's not as bleak as it seems, but it is it is a daunting. I'm not going to pretend it's not daunting. But in answer to your question, how do I know? I don't know. All I do know is in my lifetime, most people are going to have to go through public schools. Now, if in a separate conversation, if someone says, I'm going to pull my child, should I do that? I would say yes. Unequivocally, 100% yes. Because at the end of the day, if you're a mom or a dad, your first and second and probably third priority is to protect your own child. Right. If you have a greater calling to try to fight this, I welcome you. I applaud you. And you should, because we certainly need as many people as possible. We don't have enough parents to take action. OK, but if all you do is pull your child and then you stay engaged on your own on a however you want to stay engaged, more power to you. I agree with that because you're right. It is pretty far gone. But I will share with you what I tell my team very often when we get that, oh, my God, it's so daunting when you look at everything, everything you listed, everything you listed. We look at this every day. I remind them of the butterfly effect. The work that we do, the one tool we give the parent, maybe they protect the child, maybe they opt them out, uh, maybe they remove a book, maybe they get them out of it, they get, get a teacher fired, uh, help a school board candidate win so that, the, you know, at least stops the bleeding. Doesn't get rid of everything, but it stops bleeding. Or you get a parent to go, oh my God, I had no idea I'm going to pull my child. We just saved that one child. We don't know. We don't know what that child's going to do. But that child will now grow to his or her potential, whatever that was. And that child may be the one that invents something that will solve some of these things. Maybe it's a group of kids. We don't know. But all I know is that we, our work, has helped thousands of families not interrupt that potential. Because that's what the social emotional learning, critical race, transgender cults, all this ideology, what they're doing is they're interrupting children's potential and their creativity and turning them into social justice warriors. They're interrupting their potential and they're robbing them of that potential and bringing them over to their to, to create a political army. What we're trying to do is saying, look, I don't know what this child's going to do, but it's certainly they're not raised to do that. And so we're trying to we're trying to not get them to be interrupted. And I have to believe that at some point that butterfly effect is going to work its way out where that we might not win here. We might win certain things and lose certain things. But I have to believe that we've got to stay in this fight until the point where we personally at some point go maybe. I want to do something else and that we put our best in and that we've created a big enough, a butterfly effect that yeah. that will go down. That's, that's how I, ha that's how we have to look at it. 
excellent answer. And, uh, it, it combines a lot of the values that you were, uh, expressing about just working and working and, and, and being humble and hopeful too, that, that we can so, make a yeah. difference and, and walking away, throwing in the towel is just not something that you're called to do. And if somebody else is called to do that, that's their thing, but you're not called to do that. I think at some point, all of us do. Some people are lifers. Some people are, they spend their whole life in political service for good or for bad. I believe that, and this is just my personal belief. I wouldn't say that this is, you know, an organizational belief, but I would say that if you stay in one place long enough, you sometimes end up being the things that you're trying to fight. And I think my own, the way I think about it is if I start to make too many compromises for the sake of the fight, that's when I know I'm probably, I probably should take a break and do something else. Because once you start making compromises, once you start making excuses and, you know, ends justify the means kind of thing, I think then you are in danger of becoming the very thing that you fight. I'll give you an example. Like, um, so let's, let's, let's take the let's take the LGBT community. Okay, if you go back back in the day, did, did they have a reason to feel pros- you know persecuted and and second class citizens and all that? Sure. And so they got together and said, "Hey, look, we can, we don't want to be treated that way. Just leave us alone." And those people, I believe, have very good intentions for themselves to say, "Listen, just leave us alone." And if they had once they achieved whatever, they, they, because now they have equality. Right. Once the gay people achieve equality, if they had stopped there, job done, great. But that's unfortunately, it doesn't happen that way. Uh, organizations got to grow money, power, and then it starts to become now look at them. They're going to, you know, that they become going to 13 year old girls and convince them to cut their cut their breasts off. I believe if you went back and this is why like there's an organization like you know right uh, that that there's a lot of people who are gay and lesbian are speak now finally speaking out against this even though they're getting per- prosecuted persecuted for speaking out against it but if you went back to that original group of people that just said hey we're we're really getting persecuted here none of them would be okay with what's happening today but that's the problem with groups and so i think that everybody's got to put you know what the, the best effort they can in and then uh it just be okay with with what you've done. And that's a marker that everybody's got to decide for themselves. So did you say that you began this two months ago? Courage is a habit. Is that when you guys had your debut? Was it two months ago? No, or all year? Uh, I would say we started, uh, we started kind of coming up with the idea of, uh, what the organization is going to focus on back in January. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And we released our first product, which is the 10 questions every parent should ask. This is just a very uh, specific 10 questions that will help. It's for the parents that say, it's not in my schools. Maybe you're right, but these 10 questions will help you find that out. Okay. And we released that in March. Okay. In that, right. And so, you know, when you start an organization, you could, like you said, there's many different ways you can attack this problem. And certainly I think you've gotten a lot of people on there uh, that that have put in a lot of great work and are continuing to put a lot of great work into this and your show. You're, it just, just on your show alone, you've had a lot of them. Um, but we said, all right, for the first, you know, we are going to try to just focus on actionable tools and we're going to stay in our lane. We're not going to try to be what we're not. 
We're just going to try to fill these gaps mm-hmm. where if we see a myth and we see a misconception, we're going to break it. If we see a gaslighting, we're going to try to break it. If we see the guilt, try to have the guilt. Uh, oh, I did mention earlier about the just formula. So on our website, we have something called the woke gaslighting formula. And the word just is actually a word that doesn't get enough attention, a lot of attention. The word just is actually a very powerful gaslighting word. Hmm. Uh, give me an example. It's just hormone blockers. It's safe. It's reversible. It's just teaching real history. It's just about love and inclusion. It's just about kids. It's just about making kids feel they belong. It's just a clump of cells. Mm-hmm. It's just breasts. They can go get new breasts later. Just puts parents that are fighting in a defensive position. So the word just, every time you hear the word just, whatever comes after that, it's going to be some form of guilt or gaslighting to get you to shut up. Then the second part of that formula is the labeling. Benjamin is just about teaching his history. What's the big deal, you racist? Benjamin, that pornographic book or that book is not porn. It's just representation to make kids feel safe and included. What's the big deal, you bigot? That's the formula. Mm-hmm. And so we, mm-hmm. we put it out. So that way, when you hear that, don't fall for it. Don't defend yourself. Don't. That's a person that is not honest. That person does not want to have a conversation with you. They're not looking for civil discourse. They're not looking to learn anything. They're looking to shut you up. So don't engage. Don't engage. Or the only way to win is not push through it. If they're a figure of power, like uh, somebody on a school board or something. On a school board, right. Then you ignore and you just continue to hit them with what you have to prove the evidence. You you just start pushing with that. And then after a while, they realize and they'll give up that line of questioning. But if they know that it works, they'll keep doing it. Yeah. Okay. Right. So as long as you just look past it you know what it is we broke it down for you now that you so and it's one of those things that once you once you hear it you can never unhear it yeah yeah a lot so of the, is very proper a lot of the tools that you have or the resources that you have on your courage is a habit site are mm-hmm. just very simple direct breakdowns of various different phenomena that are happening specifically within schools mm-hmm. that um call out different patterns of behavior educate mm-hmm. and it's made very well so that parents can look at it, study it. They don't have to spend terribly a lot of time looking at it to really kind of get the general gist of what's going on. So it's great resources that you guys have at this point in time. What's your roadmap going forward? What do you guys have coming up next? Mm -hmm. Um, So the way we have our projects is that we try to ride what's happening in the real world. So, we have back to school. We create things for back to school for parents. Okay. Then we have school board. Then we're creating things for school boards. So we have some projects uh, for school board candidates. We have projects for parents to vet school board candidates. Because that's the next the next kind of real world thing is school board elections, right, in November. And then after that, uh, legislation comes back in session, right, around – they start writing bills around that December, January, February, that time, time frame. So we'll start creating things that – people who are working with legislation or we go to legislators and we say, Hey, this is what social emotional learning is. Your last bill missed the mark. You're not hitting this. Here's what we suggest. 
that you, if you want to make a difference, here it is. So we have um, our projects mapped out actually all the way up until the start of next school year. Not to say now, of course, those are just markers. We, we change as things change. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, if something comes up, we certainly will replace those projects with something that's more relevant. Yeah. But what we try to do is we try to create things that um, that ride what's happening in the real world so that when parents read something or they we, they learn something, they can actually activate that tool right now. It's not something they can save and go, well, maybe one day I'll use it. You know, it's something that they can use, like for the back to school stuff, we, they can use it right now because it's going back to school, the opt-out things or some of the other tools that we give. Mm -hmm. um, so that's what we that's kind of the roadmap is to have projects ride okay. what's happening in the real world. Okay. So it, it's kind of a, a resource that you guys are going to be developing over time. What are you doing additionally on top of the resources that you have right now, these PDFs and these brochures that are again, just wonderfully produced. Are you uh, thinking you. about doing workshops, doing uh, I guess retreats or online uh, stuff to, to counsel people or something? Are you letting you, you're, you're letting other organizations do that kind of work and you're showing up and offering. Mm -hmm like kind of support to various other movements. Yeah, so what so mostly we're working with the larger organizations to uh to deliver deliver these uh okay. tools uh, of course. Um we also have the ability um I have an uh, you know a, a, a resource uh that can um help school boards or excuse me, help school districts or, or, or groups that are looking for their districts to analyze and give them a report of how their district is using this. Because oftentimes when we teach this stuff, we can teach it to them in terms of, you know, uh, what to look for, but it's also very difficult because these school districts hide it. And every school district hides it a little differently. Mm -hmm. We can give them keywords, we can give them things, but one of the things that we want to start doing is to work with school, uh, to parent groups, and say, we will audit your school district, your specific school okay. district or your yeah. specific school, and we will give you a report and point you to where they're hiding the indoctrination, where they're, you know, where their contracts are, and which program and those things. And those things oftentimes are not easy to or it's not hard to find if you know where to look. And most people don't because most school sites are just so bloated. Mm -hmm. And so that's what we, because, you know, going with the theme of being specific, that's as specific as you're going to get. We can teach you at a high level what it is, like everything that we, you and I talked about. But if I'm going down to that school district right there in, uh, in North Carolina, how are they, they're still following the same general blueprint, but specifically what company are they using? How much money have they spent? Right. What are they? Are they do they have restorative justice? If they do to what degree, that kind of thing. Yeah. So now we're getting down because once you can teach that parent group what to attack, then they don't have to. They just go up. They just attack that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, get that program out of there. And I would suppose that it's probably unique, depending on unique to each school, because there's probably like kind of a very particular active group within that school that is pushing that. There's probably most uh, teachers are just 
got into teaching to be teachers, at least at this point, probably more and more mm-hmm. will be activists as time goes on. But usually it enters through like, the psychologist or through the special needs person or through, you know, some administrator or, you know, it, it could, depending on who is on fire for it and who's pushing it, it'll kind of, it'll go in through that direction. Mm-hmm. You know? So you're very know. right about that. I would say that based on what you said is a hundred percent correct. And I would say a lot of the schools, one commonality will be through the school counselors, mm-hmm. the ASCA. As you said or that. psychologists, yeah. They're psychologists, right? The school, they call the school, not school guidance counselors, school counselors are coming through ASCA, A-S-C-A. Mm. Um, and in fact, uh, we just, uh, they had a conference in July in Austin. It was their annual conference. And we have a bunch of clips from that conference uh, and they're just as radical as probably I would say they're probably more radical than any other body in K through 12 is the school counselors more than teachers, more than school boards, more than principals, more than superintendents. Radical. How? Uh, they are uh, all about pushing the, uh, transgender ideology, critical race theory, anything race, uh, because they have access to all the children's mental health mm. and they work with a lot of kids. They will mm. draw, they will take advantage of kids who are already having a hard time mm. and drive them into that uh, because they already need a place of belonging. So I would say that wow. if if That's you gave so evil. one thing, so <laughs> yeah, it's so because they have access to the most vulnerable kids. Yeah. If I had a magic wand and I and you said you had you could get rid of only one thing. Would you turn the school board? Would you get better superintendent? Would you change the state education department? Yeah, or would you get you know better mm-hmm. teachers? Whatever, I would get rid of the school counselors as they are. Mm-hmm. That's what I would pick. Mm-hmm. They drive. I mean, short of removing SC, even if we, I would say even if you take SEL out of the schools completely, let's say, and now the program's gone, this is, I would probably pick that. But if I'm talking about just organizations, where if I can change this to organizations, I would pick the school counselors beyond, before I pick anybody else. Yeah. They're really, really far gone. Yeah. And not just within schools, but a lot of the mental health profession has succumbed to uh, ideological capture and not trying to solve mental health, but... I met some therapists that are starting to th- speak out against her. No, they've got docs and some of them got fired and things. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I've met some, several therapists, nothing to do with schools, just outside, uh, mm-hmm. you know, outside of schools that they have said exactly that, exactly what you said, that this, that profession is so it's, it's so taken over that it's very difficult for people to trust mm-hmm. that when you go to a therapist, and a psychologist that probably not your greatest time in life, that mm-hmm. they're going to guide you back to the light and not more towards more ideology, which like you said, it's, it's, it's just really, just really keyful stuff. You know, you're taking advantage of people's not at their greatest point in life. So Alvin, you're doing excellent work. Excellent work. I'm glad that I I got a chance to speak with you and to shine more light on what you're doing because it's great tools, especially for parents who just need the facts, ma'am. And uh, a game plan. Yeah. Um, I, I, I appreciate you giving me this opportunity to talk about this. Uh, you've been very kind. Thank you. Just for human interest, um, yes, sir. To, to wrap up the conversation, is there something fun that you do with, with your 
hands or your body? Are you a musician? Do you, uh, do you, do you have a, like a big project that you're doing in your backyard? You're digging a tunnel or something like that? Or is there something fun that you do outside of this? You know what? I, it's sad to say that this takes up so much of my time that uh-huh. I think any of the things that I used to do that I really enjoy doing a lot, it's been devoted to this because okay. it's such a large amount of, of, of things. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think I do am looking forward to getting back to some of the things that I used to love a lot. I love watching movies, you know, mm. don't, I don't have time to do that much anymore. And uh, this is completely off, off the side. Uh, but when I was in California, I was actually a professional magician. Oh, really? Yeah, it's professional illusionist. And uh, mo- more my, most of my clients and work has always been at the corporate level. And so that's what we, you know, that's what uh, was my entertainment company there. So uh, that's a whole different conversation. Is uh, there the- is there a trick that you do right now, or, or is there uh, are, are your tricks out there on the interwebs that people can find? Uh, there's some, yeah, of hand. There's probably still there's still a lot of YouTube stuff, and there's still a lot of things that. Oh, great. Uh, you know, uh, there's still a lot of those uh, things out there. I, I'm sure. Did um, is but, there? No, it's a. Um, the biggest mistake you've made? Did you ever drown somebody or actually cut a woman in half? Did anything go terribly wrong? Oh, sure. All the time. I, I never hurt anybody, oh, okay. but I probably embarrassed myself. Uh, but that's what, what, what happens. And, uh, so, um, yeah, uh, it's, uh, it's something that I have done for quite a long time. And, uh, but you know, when, when did you start that? Was that like your 12 year old, uh, like like that's when did you start getting obsessed with that i was like 14 or 15 where, and, where did you start uh, cards or balls or rabbits i started with uh, no i started with some coins i started with just stuff around the house and uh yeah. then you know there's cards and there's you know we used to, my kind of magic is really trying to uh when i if we do shows and things i'll tell you if we do stage shows we've got some of the bigger stuff but when i'm doing close-up or parlor show it's really trying to use things people's phones uh there was a, something I used with people's Instagram for a little, you know, like uh, you try to do something with their Instagram. So there, you try to incorporate new technology and stuff into oh, it. But okay. I think people still love the old, uh, you know, some of the older things. And, yeah. you know, it's just uh, physical know. stuff. Oh, fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Have you ever doxed somebody on accident? You're like, you're, you're playing around with their Instagram and you, you leak all of their uh, passwords online or something. I just want to know like how powerful you are by your mistakes <laughs> no, that you can make. <laughs> no, legit. no, no. We just try, you know, I think that the, the most I've probably ever done was like, uh, you know, steal someone's uh, cell phone password or something. You know, <laughs> I try to use my power for good. Okay, good. Which actually, good. you know, what? it's funny that, that, that to, on that line there is that a lot of the things that, um, people that are doing to, you know, at the school level to parents is unfortunately a lot of the things that we do in magic. And so I'll, I'll give you this one, mm. you know, they're probably kicking me out of the magic circle or something. Matt, uh, the way magic works at its most basic psychology is that we tell you a grain of truth and then we surround it with lies. And then we go back to truth and then we surround it with lies until your brain breaks and goes, it's a miracle. Mm-hmm. That's it. That's all magic essentially works that way. Hmm. And so, but you do it for entertainment, you do it for storytelling and you know, that's, that's magic, right? That's always been magic. Uh, it's uh, but what, when, when, when they do it, like the parents and all this stuff, they start off with the truth and surround it with lies. And then when you call them on it, they go back to the truth. And then when you're not looking, they go back to the lies. Mm-hmm. And so when it's, so, so it's, so for me, I, I recognize all of it very clearly because of 
my whole profession. So it's a strange, very strange way I look at it. I think that there is a grand, expansive idea to your current business is to create a magic show that does the SAL thing, just uses SEL, yeah. and then ends that's with the right. truth, rather than yeah, ending with the yeah. lie. Just that's play, right. play the whole thing and then show how the trick is done. I um, think that's a, that's, a, that's a really fantastic idea. I think, I think, uh, I think that's a... Culture is the, is the cornerstone of... of, of everything else. And if we can return to entertainment and capture and make beautiful things and true things and mm -hmm. good things, I think that has just as much power as um, fighting on a political level is changing is. people's hearts and stuff. So it is. And that's, I think, you know, when I see kids become this uh, social justice activist, it breaks my heart on a human level because I think, wow, they could have done so much with that passion. Music, magic, writing, acting, because art is all art's beautiful, even all art's beautiful. And then, and then the most beautiful art is art that's in the beginning because the children are unencumbered. Hmm. That's how we invent new things. This is why magic has moved on. The magic is one of the oldest art forms, but it's continually uh, evolved and reinvented itself generation after generation because kids will come in. And they won't do what the previous they'll, they'll do what the previous generation did and then add their own things yeah, and build on it yeah. things and build on that but that is because they're unencumbered with all the things we put on children mm. right we let them be we let them we let their innocence breathe mm. but if we start putting all this heavy world cops are killing black people for fun and the world's going to end in 12 years and climate change and things then how can art thrive in a mind of a child who's always scared mm -hmm. and confused. So you're right. It's important that we let that innocence breathe because in that innocence is when we have all the things that we have all in, in, in art and beauty and writing and music and all those different things. And bridges too. <laughs> and how does that function and plumbing that works. Everything <laughs> that, every invention, you know, it's uh, from someone's imagination, mm -hmm. but you got to let that innocence breathe and that mind be, clear to mm -hmm. do that and i think we're we're robbing ourselves from a lot of future artists by doing this to kids because you know in my old profession i worked with a lot of young kids and some of the things they do you're like my god how are you doing that you're 12 mm -hmm. you're 16 you're doing that it's like amazing you know because they just that's they, they're obsessed with that art and then there's so much you know they, they do things you're like wow i didn't think about that which mm -hmm. is great well, that, that's a great way to end the conversation. Thank you again, Alvin, for all of your work you're doing and for giving me a chance to pick your brain. Hey, thank you. I, I appreciate it. We'll see you soon.